0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome, everybody, to a special midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley, here with Kartik Krishnair. I'm going to be talking about a few things that we missed since we didn't have a show on Sunday. It's been international soccer over the last two weeks. We'll get caught up on that. Special focus on Euro 26 qualifying, as well as a little talk about the U.S. men's national team and their interesting result on (laughs) Tuesday against Brazil. We'll talk a little bit about some of the major transfer window deals that we haven't had a chance to opine about. And then we'll look forward to this weekend's fixtures in the Premier League. Kartik, it is great to talk to you. You and I are one-on-one today. Let's jump right into it. Uh, What are your thoughts now that the international break is over?
1: Thank goodness the international break is over. It was uh, it was torturous in, in many ways. I, I did uh, enjoy some of the, the games in European qualifying. I was disappointed Northern Ireland and Wales did not qualify yet. yet. I think they'll both qualify in the next, next set of games. Yeah, Although, wait, Wales, I was, Wales is in. Yeah, Wales is in because they've got a game against Andorra. Northern Ireland a little tougher, Greece and at Finland, but uh, Northern Ireland showed so much fight in that game just to get that late goal from Lafferty. That's a a three-point swing because Hungary is the team that they're competing with. So um, I think they're going to be fine. and It'll be great to see both those home nations back in international. Oh, well, actually, I've never seen Wales in an international competition. <laughs> I you're do not, remember North, not Northern Ireland old. in the World Cup, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been a long time. So I'd love to see both. And obviously, Northern Ireland almost qualified under Laurie Sanchez, right, when they were in Spain's group, uh, mm-hmm. 2008, but they just missed. And um, so that's a long time coming for them. And that's that's really kind of – oh, and let me let me mention Austria. Austria's been fantastic in qualifying, another great performance in Stockholm, and they are through, they've qualified.
0: Yeah, there are a number of storylines we can talk about with Euro 2016, uh, but I think the good place to start off is with a the premise in a piece that's on worldsoccertalk.com today by Terrence F. Ross, and uh, the premise is basically that the 2014 tournament, so derided when it was expanded by traditionalists who love the 16-team model, has had some Unexpected benefits for qualifying. We still don't know if the 2014 tournament is going to work, but Kartik, I tend to agree that this qualifying cycle has been much more interesting than the previous UEFA qualifying tournaments.
1: Yeah, I think this 2016 cycle has been much better because uh, you've got, uh, I I think, more balanced groups. I've talked about Northern Ireland. That group is incredibly balanced. Northern Ireland, Romania, Hungary. Uh, they're all Greece. W- if, if Greece had not performed so poorly and, and after uh, the sacking of Santos, the ridiculous sa- sacking of yeah. Santos, you have more balanced groups other than. The England group, of course. For mm-hmm. some reason, England keeps getting handed these, these kind of easy groups. It, it's so getting, strange. It's, yeah. it's,
0: it's got to be coincidental. There's nothing in this. But the other thing, too, is that they may just be a very good qualifying team. They may perform very well in this format and have a team that is less apt mm-hmm. to kind of reach the peaks needed to perform good at a major tournament.
1: Yeah, it's very odd because they travel well. They travel yeah. to Eastern Europe since Capello took over as manager. Now, this wasn't the case under McLaren, although it was the case under Sven. I mean, they breezed through qualifying mm-hmm. a couple times under Sven. Uh, they, uh, in fact, sending Italy to a playoff once in Germany, another time. Uh, they travel really well to Eastern Europe, which the Frances and the Spains and the Italy's and the Germans don't necessarily do. So, uh, and Holland is not doing it well at all. I mean, they're not doing anything well in this qualifying cycle. So, no, they're not. but I. I think it's interesting because we're going to have multiple home nations. Hopefully Northern Ireland can get over the line. Wales will get over the line. Uh, I think that's great for the game in the British Isles and, and the English-speaking world, if you will. We're going to have Austria actually qualify for a major tournament for the first time in, uh, since 98. Uh, they hosted one, so they, 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 they were in the year 2008. Uh, Norway might qualify for a major tournament for the first time since 98. Also, so that, that would be wonderful. Iceland has qualified for the first time. Uh, we're seeing Turkey, who has really struggled uh, with a bit of a, resurg- a resurgence late in qualifying and a 3 0 win in, in Istanbul against uh, the against struggling Dutch side. That's good for the game. We're seeing all kinds of positive storylines in European qualifying that I don't think we would see if it were the straightforward, okay, only two teams qualify from a group and and we've got five pots and we have these these two-seeded teams in each group and they're the ones qualifying, right? I think it's just been much more compelling.
0: Yeah, I don't know what the causation quite is there. When you start thinking about scenarios as to why teams are more motivated now than they may have been before, or why they see the world so differently, there isn't exactly a very clear picture that emerges. But the results have been kind of unquestionable. So you mentioned some of the teams that are qualified. There are four teams that have qualified at this point. Group A, the top two teams are locked in. Iceland, Czech Republic, they could flip positions, but they're both qualified for the tournament. England, the only team that's perfect through qualifying, they're in. And then Austria also qualifying out of Group G. Uh, group A has been the one that's gotten the most headlines, Kartik, not only because of Turkey, as you talked about, not only because of Iceland, which became the least populous country to qualify for Euro- uh, European championships, but mostly because of the Netherlands. And we've had a lot of articles coming out about the Netherlands over this week because the debut of Danny Blind in replacing uh, Goose Hedink has only made things worse. They're not even in the top three of their group now. Kartik, to me, this goes back to the same topic that I think you and I have always talked about since we've known each other. The Netherlands have this Cruyff and Michel's enabled mystique, but they haven't actually had a team that justified that mystique for quite some time.
1: Right, and I think what we're finding again is they have a generation of players that's missing in their development. So uh, Amy Lawrence wrote about this. Yeah, that was a
0: great piece. Yeah, and I,
1: I had actually been thinking the same thing. I think we were all thinking... It, but, of course, you need the brilliance of Amy Lawrence to bring bring it out on paper uh, that they basically you're, you're looking at the core of their team, uh, the, the, the guys who are still reliable, being Van Persie, uh, Huntelaar, uh, De Jong, uh, Robin, when he's when he's fit, he's he's injured now. And uh, who am I forgetting about? Uh, and Schneider. They're all hmm. they're all over the age of uh, 30. And then you've got Van der Vaart and Van Bommel in that kind of in that group that, that are retired now. So sure. um, that's that's the core of their team the, the in between generation, which includes guys like Struman, have not really kind of performed at that high level. And now the next group of guys that are that, that's gonna carry the Dutch are the Memphis DePies who are twenty one. Louis van Gaal figured out a way to make it work in the two thousand fourteen World Cup, but I think heading into twenty sixteen, in hindsight now, uh the, the twenty sixteen Euros, there was always going to be some struggles, especially uh, in a group that included the Czech Republic and Turkey. Now, Iceland has been coming on for some time. They've really taken this group by storm. But the Czech Republic, let's face it, they always qualify for the Euros. I mean, they, this is uh, remarkable that they always qualify for the Euros and seemingly never qualify for World Cups. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're very consistent in European qualifying. They're generally going to qualify. And Turkey, I think, well, eh, this is funny. This, this is the motif here between Turkey and, and, and the Dutch. Turkey went backwards in, in Gus Heating's reign. As did Russia, in my opinion. And now we're seeing it with the Dutch. I think mm-hmm. Goose Heating's lifespan as a manager... It was, it, it was a
0: terrible hire.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they should have just uh, cut it off. He should just cut it off after he was done with Australia. With Russia, uh, it was it became a disaster. Yeah. And they had, to, they had to dig out of that. And it's continued to happen everywhere he's gone. So I, I think that's the issue. And I think the thing that might be ironic, and this is a nice segue maybe, is that that missing generation of, of Dutch players... That generation plays in the neighboring nation of Belgium, and they have a golden generation between the ages of like 22 and 28, which mm-hmm. is the generation squarely missing from the Dutch. It's just one of these ironic things in birth pattern in, in, the, in the low countries, in the Benelux countries.
0: And yet, you know, Belgium is obviously very highly regarded at this point. You have said that they're your favorites next next summer. Yes. yes. Se- second place in their group, dropped points in three games, in a relatively straightforward group. Wales has been great, but... Let's not kid ourselves. Belgium was the favorite here. Uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina has been much worse than people thought they were. So the kind of number two team in that group has actually ended up being the number four team. So we're still waiting for Belgium to really grasp yeah. that potential. A uh, great, great FIFA ranking. If that actually meant something, we could talk about it more. And they're going to be in this tournament, but, uh, it's going to be next summer before we know if this golden generation is wow. ready.
1: I think the thing about Belgium that, that really strikes me, is, and this this might be a nice segue back to the Premier League, is I see guys and maybe you fall in love with them on paper and they have they, they're 23 strong, right? They're, they're the one national team in the world, maybe maybe Argentina, but, but definitely Belgium. they have 23 guys. You can throw out there or at least 20 field players you can throw out there. But um, we're seeing some of the inconsistencies of these players, even at the Premier League level, the Fellainis, the uh, Aiden Hazards, his uh, his poor club form. Even though he got the winner the other day, he was called out by uh, Mark Wilmont's after the game. Again,
0: seems like an annual thing with these two. Right.
1: Yeah and, and and he's drifting in and out of games. He's not he, he doesn't seem to be very consistent. De Bruyne is the one player that seems to be consistent for them. Yeah. Ben Teke was terrible. Uh this is an interesting one for Liverpool fans. Ben Teke is pulled at halftime for Origi and Origi looked a lot better than Ben Teke. I don't know if Rodgers is ever going to make that change.
0: No, but I'm not, I'm not sure he should either, but I mean Wilmot's obviously saw something that those two had that dynamic where Origi probably had a better week of training but uh yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if, how many days of the year that's going to be the appropriate bet to make on those two.
1: Yeah, and Kevin Morales is very inconsistent. You know, he's hit or miss, just as we see at Everton. Yeah. Lukaku can be a beast or can, be, can disappear. So a lot of the same things we see from these players in the Premier League we're seeing uh, in international duty for Belgium. But Richard, if Belgium puts it all together, I just don't see how anyone can beat them. Uh, that having been said, I'm beginning to wobble on my pick because, <laughs> I, I, even in this two wins, this this uh, break, I saw some uh, some very worrying signs from them, and and a lot mm. of it has to do with Hazard's just kind of indifference to playing hard for eighty of night eighty of the ninety minutes.
0: Well, you mentioned the Premier League. We need to get to that in a moment, but first, let's get a word in from our sponsors. By now, you know that our sp- sponsors are Rabble TV. Uh, a great place to go during this season. You know, we're already a month into the premier league season and a season that's living up to expectations. And rabble.tv is a great way to keep that excitement going. Uh, It's a place you can go to listen to live commentaries from real fans while games are being played. And it works so simply, all you have to do is tune into your game, but then press the mute button. Then head over to rabble.tv, listen to soccer fans providing their own calls or better yet. You can create your own broadcast. Call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your microphone. Um, You can listen through your desktop, your iOS app, through your mobile browser. It just could not be easier, whether you want to do the broadcast yourself or you want to listen to one of your friends' broadcasts. Go over to rabble.tv, sign up today. The site has been completely redesigned. Go there. It's your team, and it can be your call. Kartik, you have a show every Thursday that's on Rabble.tv. Uh, what's going to be happening on your show tomorrow, tomorrow or today? I, I imagine most people are going to be listening to this on Thursday. I, I hear you have an interesting show coming up. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, uh, Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, 2 a.m. BST, 6 p.m. Pacific. Ted Western, the one and only proponent of promotion and relegation I, doing this. in the United States. <laughs> and his, uh uh, he, he uh, and, and all his numerous conspiracy theories uh, among other things will be uh discussed uh, he will be our, our guest on divers and Cheat, and it's an interactive show so sign up uh, for an account at rabble and you can you can leave comments you can you can tweet at me at KKFLa 737 uh you can all of course listen to the podcast on demand on this stream on the world soccer talk stream and uh if you have a thought about promotion and relegation in the U S and especially intelligent thoughts, not just, Oh, well we need to do it because that's the way it's done in the rest of the world. Uh, please leave a comment, please. Uh, let's, in, let's interact. Uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting show. It could go any number of directions, Richard. And, uh, uh you and I have kind of war this out already <laughs> offline, so uh, it, it'll be fun.
0: Mm. Well, Kartik, before we get to the games this weekend, let's talk about the transfer window. Our last show was 10 days ago on Sunday. Uh, the transfer window in England closed two days later. Most countries in Europe had closed on that Monday. A lot, of activity, a lot of activity centered around your team, Kartik, and I want to start with this point of view on it. Uh, in the waning days, ESPN FC actually had a decent article where they went through and looked at the last, I think it was six years of spending, and only one club in the world has spent more than Manchester City, and that was Real Madrid, who has spent four million more euros than Manchester City. Manchester City has the most, the, the greatest net spend in that time. And during this transfer window, they had the two highest fees in the world, and Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Raheem Sterling. Kevin De Bruyne's fee compounded by the fact that he's getting a very nice wage packet there at the Etihad. Um, and in the wake of all of this news, you hear the same thing from other fans, Karthik, that you've heard for years and years and years, deriding the team's spending, talking about buying titles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How trying are these transfer windows for you? Because you have to get tired of that fan saying that same thing every time.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, I, I'm getting tired of it also, because I think what we've, what people seem to forget is that Manchester City, when they started the spending, were were a mid-table Premier League club. So you have to spend a certain amount of money to get to uh, to uh, a place where you're contending. To, just establish your League.
0: foundation, right?
1: Right, to get to get to that point. So Bobby McMahon did a great story on this, by the way, in Forbes. I highly recommend it. Uh, talking about Manchester City's net spend and how it's actually now in in compliance with financial fair play Mm -hmm. because Manchester City has been able to clear a lot of the the excess in the wage bill. Now Manchester United's wage bill is actually significantly higher than Manchester City's. Manchester United's is significantly higher than Chelsea's also. Mm -hmm. So uh, Bobby McMahon really well well thought out piece that uh, unfortunately, as he says, people are just looking at transfer fees. Now this having been said, There was a um, a study done by, by, I forget the group, and Eurosport wrote about it, and so did Gold.com that actually uh, valued Raheem Sterling as the most undervalued transfer of this window. Martial was the uh, highest. Uh, was the most overvalued and De Bruyne was the second most uh, overvalued so that was an interesting that group
0: is the I always forget the acronym I think it's C-I-E-S and they've been doing work for a long time but now they've been having their work picked up by a number of places and it's uh, very analysis and statistics and market driven uh, but I think your point about wages is right on. And I think even at our site, we can do a better, and on this podcast, we can do a better job of Any anytime we mention a fee, we should really at least provide some hint as to what the wages are, particularly for young players that have deals that extend over five years and could potentially have an extension involved with it where that, Transfer fee could end up kind of being amortized over six, seven, eight years if things work out right. Now, somebody like Raheem Sterling, part of, the attractive, uh, part of what's attractive about him is even though his wage demands were made s- such a big thing in England, relative to other players that cost that money, it, he's not that expensive. So a little bit of the money that you're spending on him can get shoved into the transfer fee file, p- pile. Whereas De Bruyne, yeah, that's just, that is just a, a huge buy on all levels.
1: Right, which is why I think, again, that he was viewed as uh, as uh, overvalued, whereas Sterling was viewed as undervalued, and there's also the age uh, consideration. And I think uh, the CIES group also kind of has a, a bit of an uh, English bias, Premier League bias, and they saw De Bruyne flop at Chelsea or at least in statistically flop mm. at Chelsea and Martial hasn't played in England whereas Sterling's numbers I mean regardless of what Liverpool fans say Sterling's numbers at Liverpool as an 18 year old and a 19 year old were incredibly impressive and particularly yeah. in this day and age when we don't see players at that age getting playing 25 or 30 league games a season it not, just doesn't not happen for those
0: clubs no yeah and particularly the, given the aspirations that Liverpool had and then you know last year he was basically after Suarez left and Sturridge uh, got hurt, he was basically left alone. And then he was played at wing back for a little bit last year, too. So the, the numbers are very impressive. But let's get back to Manchester City. We'll talk about Manchester United's uh, ordeals in a second. <laughs> uh, but Manchester City, the one thing that I keep, keeps popping into my mind has to deal with them in Europe, Kartik. And this is really the kind of the last hurdle that Manchester City needs to get over. They need to actually go on some kind of impressive run in Champions League. Not win it. I don't think you need to win Champions League to prove that you're a Champions League contending caliber team, but they haven't ever really contended for this trophy before. And my question is whether De Bruyne, with his talent but also the depth that he adds, whether that's going to be enough to really put them in this kind of same category as PSG, where they're just right on the cusp of doing some damage.
1: Um. That's a that's a tough question because on paper I would say yes but there's yeah, been but something papers
0: always look good with this team but there's always been yeah, something about it
1: there's always something about it and again it's a very difficult group with Juve and uh, and Sevilla and mm. uh, and and uh, Muchen Gladbach Gladbach right uh, so finishing second puts you in a position where you're gonna you're gonna draw Bayern or Barcelona or Real Madrid again yeah. so that's that's the problem that having been said I think City almost may benefit this time go around from being in that group because that group is a group where everybody can beat everybody else. Mm-hmm. When city has been drawn into group previously, city has had either Bayern Munich or uh, either Bayern or Real Madrid has been in city's group. And it was a given that those two were not going to drop points. Either of those two were going to drop. were not going to drop points to the bottom two teams in the group. So you were, you were in a position as Manchester city. Now one time Dort- Dortmund was in the group too, but mm-hmm. uh, where if those teams are not dropping points at all, that top team, you're going to finish second or worse. And if you finish second, you, you, you come out and you play Barcelona or you play uh, Bayern. Mm-hmm. This time, it's very possible Juve, which is the seeded team, the, the number one seed, is going to drop points when they go to Germany, when they go to uh, uh, Sevilla. Mucha um, Gladbach is very difficult to break down at home. So uh, I, I can see Juve, the post Arturo Vidal uh, Juve, maybe struggling I saw yeah. them against Roma last week they didn't look very good uh, but it, it, it's it, it's now or never right for man city this is this is the test and i think this is what pellegrini has been tasked with this season is to get further in Europe. Maybe not win the Champions League. That's a little bit uh, far-fetched at this point, uh, especially with those top three clubs, but to get at least to the quarterfinals this year, which hasn't been done yet.
0: I don't think any club probably has better than a 25% at most chance of winning Champions League at this point, just because there are so many good clubs and there are so many obstacles in the way. But I think one thing that really helps Manchester City here, Kartik, and it's something that you and I have talked about for weeks in relation to Chelsea versus Manchester City, and how Manchester City seem to have seem to have formulated an attack that was so perfect to go up against a bunch of tough, but slow, smart, but aging defenders in Chelsea. And you look over at Juventus, and that's their whole defense. And so the idea of the Chiellinis of the world, keeping right. up with Aguero and Sterling and De Bruyne and Silva and Nasri and da, da 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 I think it's a good matchup for them. And then as you kind of hinted at, Juventus is a team that uh, the way they're situated is kind of willing to take one point on the road and drop points here and not really pull away from the group.
1: Yeah, uh, City have been in a group with Juventus before, by the way, in the Europa League, and Juventus had six points in that group. They drew all six matches. They didn't advance. So uh, City won that group, and and uh, uh, like Poznan uh, from Poland came in second. So that's uh, that's City's European experience with with uh, Juventus getting a point at uh, in in Turin.
0: Well, let's talk about the other half of Manchester now, Kartik. The other team that really made noise at the end of the transfer window, although it was a different type of noise. Uh, we are a week removed from it, but I still think there's something to be said about the, what happened with the David De Gea debacle. And granted, both clubs have said so much already about it. So I think maybe the f- way to focus on this and a way to transition back into the Premier League talk is really talk about what the inclusion of David De Gea, assuming he will be included, all uh, indications say yes, what the inclusion of D- David De Gea will do to change the Manchester United squad.
1: Well, it makes them stronger in theory because he's, one of the top goalkeepers in the world. And they would probably not have finished fourth last season without him. Who knows if they even finished seventh the season before without him, if uh, maybe Mm -hmm. Southampton gets seventh or somebody else, they, uh, they have been very reliant on him uh, to, to, to to kind of cover for for a very dodgy back line now for a couple of seasons. so that's, uh, that's an up uh, that's, that's a, that's a point up for this season. However, they're going to lose him in all likelihood yep. at the end of this season. And they um, are now in a position where they're not going to recoup a transfer fee. They're not going to win the league this season. So not getting a transfer fee for him and keeping him for an extra season when you're probably at best going to finish fourth is very, very questionable. Uh, and of course, they tried to move him on. But again, they, 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 they stalled, they stalled, they stalled until the last minute. Uh, they're the, the Alleging Real Madrid hadn't made a bid. Who knows? Madrid is very arrogant in their transfer dealing, so maybe United is Edward Ward is telling the truth this time. Uh, It's hard to know, but they have Victor Valdez, uh, who is a three-time Champions League winning goalkeeper, on their bench. And uh, if Louis van Gaal had not antagonized him in the preseason, they would not have even been in this position. So I have to go back to that, because I think that is something that has been overlooked. Valdez— could walk into the into most teams in Europe as the goalkeeper. He could have walked into the Manchester City, te- Manchester United team, definitely ahead of Sergio Romero. There's no question in my <laughs> mind about that. Yeah. So. Uh, I, I don't care uh, if people uh, – there's some people in the United States who just watch internationals for some reason. They say, oh, he's starting goalkeeper for Argentina, and Valdez was uh, has never really played for Spain. Well, they had a guy named Casillas <laughs>
0: that you might have heard of. That is but, ama- uh, that's amazing logic.
1: Yeah, that's great logic, isn't it? But there's no, there's no manager in the world that would pick Romero over Valdez other than Louis Van Gaal. So that's why they were in this position where they had to get Kaylor Navas – uh, into the, and in try and make this deal at the last minute. So uh, they've just botched everything up. And I just have to keep coming back to Von Hall. I, I, maybe we'll get into it in a minute, but I, I don't think selling Chicharito was smart. I don't think selling Johnny Evans was smart. But, uh, uh, I guess it's a completely different Manchester United team, and, and he's going to live and die with uh, his choices.
0: Well, let's talk about the one acquisition that they did make. You alluded to it earlier, greatly overpaying for who is a player who's now the most expensive teenager in transfer history, Anthony Martial from Monaco. Um, whether that transfer fee, which is reported at thirty. it it can climb with bonuses up to 80 million euro but it's much it's about half of that at this point which is still the most anybody has ever paid for a teenager uh, Kartik, I don't have much to say about him. I mean, I've watched a good deal of Monaco over the last year, but um, from people who watch Monaco more, it was really only the last couple months of the season where he was moved higher in the formation and given the freedom to really use his talent that he really shined. And by that point, I, I was not interested in watching Monaco anymore. So what I see from him is a decent player that I have no context for as a, as a player that's one of the most expensive forwards in England right now.
1: Yeah, so this is a young player who's more of a winger who uh, showed some uh, showed some sp- uh, spunk with Monaco? He played very well in that two leg tie against Arsenal in the Champions League. But it may, it may, it's a good buy for less money. But let's 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 consider this: uh, Manchester United has sold Danny Welbeck uh, and, and uh, just moved him on really to a, to a rival team. Uh, now he's injured. Now Wenger is going to be questioned about not buying a replacement when he knew Welbeck was injured. But that's mm-hmm. that's that's immaterial. They they sold Welbeck. They uh, let Falcao go, who is a player who still could have been useful for them. Same club they were dealing with, Monaco. Um, They have sold Robin Van Persie, which I I think it was time. But again, they sold him and didn't buy a replacement. Then they sold Chicharito Hernandez, who has performed well for every other manager in Europe he's played for other than Louis Van Gaal. He performed well for Alex Ferguson. He performed well for uh, David Moyes. He performed well for Carlo Ancelotti. He did not, he cannot perform for Louis Van Gaal. They moved him on to Leverkusen where he'll score a bunch of goals, I bet. And, uh, Uh, They have not bought a replacement for any of these guys. I I don't know what their transfer policy and a club. uh, I think Lawrence hit it on the head in the last show or two shows ago. They just assume because they're Manchester United that certain things happen. We, and maybe we assume because they're Manchester United, they should get a certain type of player. Mm -hmm. Probably we're past that.
0: Probably are. Or, much the same way when Manchester City was trying to climb their way into Champions League spots and had to pay so much for Yaya Toure amongst other players, they're having to pay so much in salaries to make up for that, um, and that ties into the wage bill concerns that you talked about earlier. But since we're talking about Manchester United and we mentioned Lawrence, let's talk about the big match of the weekend. This is the late game on Saturday, first Northwest Derby of the year. The uh, well, one thing that jumps out to me here, Kartik, is Felipe Cacino, because of those involved in that those slew of bad wow. red cards. On the last uh, match day, he's not going to be making the trip to Old Trafford for this one. Liverpool has had trouble scoring goals. We thought their defense was sound. They had trouble preventing goals against West Ham. Uh, I'm not seeing a lot to recommend Liverpool here, even though United also seems like a very flawed team.
1: Yeah, Firmino's not going to be going up against Ventura Alvarado again (laughs) like he did yesterday in the uh, U.S.-Brazil game. He just absolutely used them. Uh, that one a couple times, but really I'm thinking about the one where he didn't score. Guzan made the save, mm-hmm. uh, but there's not a whole lot to suggest Liverpool. But at the same time, I mean, I I don't know where United is psychologically after all of this. I mean, I guess this is a great opportunity for them to to turn the page and move on because they're playing their biggest rival at Old Trafford. It's going to be a ruckus atmosphere. Uh, Liverpool coming off an absolutely embarrassing result uh, against West Ham uh, before everybody went off to international duty. Uh, but my my concern is, for from Manchester United's standpoint, defensively we saw some cracks in the last game. Mm-hmm. Venteke, I mentioned, was, didn't play well for Belgium, got hauled off at halftime, Origi put in his place, Origi played much better. Uh, and Origi plays for Liverpool too, let me not forget that, so he, he's an option if Brendan Rodgers ever wants to use him. But I just I have this sense that their their center back pairing is not especially with Daley Blinn playing there is not it, it, it's not um seasoned in this sort of situation you're going to see a lot of balls played up to Benteke you're going to see Firmino who's very strong and can hold the ball up in, in that Coutinho role in my, I I'm, I'm assuming that's where Firmino is going to play you're probably going to see um uh, Jordan Ibe in this game running at uh, at, at the Manchester United defense, and I think uh, you've got a situation where uh, Liverpool has enough quality where they could they could if Manchester United is psychologically not there after all this ex- uh, excitement mm-hmm. of the last couple of weeks, uh, and David David de Gea is not mentally back where they could they could steal a point here, and so uh, and that would be a devastating result for Manchester United. If, if uh, I think really the problems for Manchester United in the David Moyes season began when they lost to Liverpool and that's consistently, uh, this, this derby means so much in English football. And, and I think both teams are kind of at a tipping point. Liverpool is in a little bit of uh is in a little bit of a crisis after that West Ham result, uh, and Manchester United is in total crisis. So, Uh, One of these two teams are are, are, going to feel better about themselves after this weekend.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a lot of matchup advantages that Liverpool have, despite Felipe Calcione not being there. We saw the trouble that Manchester United got in at Swansea, when Luke Shaw got too far forward, they were able to put people behind them, pulled Daley Blinn out wide, and really uh, wrecked that defense. So hopefully that's something Van Hall has worked on over the past couple of weeks because it was such an obvious uh, exploitation that Gary Monk engineered there. Uh, a really astute move in the second half of that game. We talked about that two weeks ago. But I think we are going to see a lot of situations here, like you were talking about, long balls to Benteke, where we're really going to test whether Chris Smalling does deserve the hype that he has justifiably gotten over the first month of the season because this is a one-on-one matchup he needs to win as long as they are going to use Daily Blin there in central defense. I'm a big proponent of using somebody like a Daily Blin in central defense. I think we see with Javier Mascherano at Barcelona, it has worked. Having somebody that is good on the ball, has a little bit more of a midfielder's background and midfielder's instincts, but that only really can survive if the person next to that person is able to win these one-on-one matchups when you do have somebody like a Christian Benteke. I think Chris Smalling's up to it. I just don't know if it's actually going to happen. And like you said, that might be one of the more interesting things that we see out of this game on Sunday, on Saturday, sorry. Uh, Other games on Saturday, arsenal Stoke, Crystal Palace-Manchester City, Norwich-Bournemouth- Watford hosts Swansea. West Brom is hosting Southampton. The two games on Sunday, Sunderland hosting Tottenham. Leicester City hosting Aston Villa. One game I didn't mention on Saturday will be the last one we talk about here. Everton and Chelsea. Uh, Kartik, they're calling this the John Stones derby. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> To me, it's still remarkable that Stones is going to be wearing uh, Everton's particular shade of blue
1: there's been a derby game in September each of the last three seasons. They keep playing early in the season. And uh, two years ago, it was the Lukaku derby. Last year, it was the Samuel Eto'o derby. Now, it's the John Stones derby. Uh, There's a brewing rivalry between these two clubs uh, over all these kinds of transfer dealings and and, and this sort of thing, uh, which is interesting. Uh, It's not what you would consider a natural rivalry uh, at all, Chelsea and and Everton. But the thing that I'm wondering, and I've done a lot of, Thinking about this and hypothesizing about this over the course of the last week, talking to Everton supporters. I have so many friends who are Everton supporters. Bill Kentright and Roberto Martinez made the decision not to sell John Stones uh, for 40 million. They made the decision not to sell Stephen Naismith to Norwich for 8 million. They uh, killed any other dealings that would involve selling players, core players in their in their side. Uh, and I have to believe it's one of two things. We know the situation at Everton financially. We know the team is leveraged to the hilt, basically, right? That they're that they're in, they're in debt and Kent, Wright, You know, they're, they're paying they're paying services on the debt. All this, all these sorts of things we, we hear. Um, so I believe either Kent Wright is seriously talking to uh, an investor or another owner to come in and invest a lot of money and buy maybe buy Everton or. Martinez has convinced Kent Wright, without the shackles of Europa League, mm-hmm. that they're in a position to repeat what they did two seasons ago. And this time they can actually get. Oof. So so you, you, you get Champions League money on one uh, in one of the scenarios and the other scenario, you get an investor. That's the only Richard. The reason I say this is there's no other possible explanation or justification for not selling stones for that kind of money.
0: I do think they have a good team. I think they I don't know if they have one of the best six or seven squads in the league, but I do think that there's just a threshold that you get to where you can beat teams. And I think Everton between the talent that they have and the depth that they've acquired and the depth that they have coming back with players like Aruna Kone. Uh, And they will have coming back when Leighton Baines eventually gets back. Uh, I think that they have players that can beat teams on any given day. And it wouldn't surprise me if they beat Chelsea in this one, particularly since Everton does seem to play better when they don't actually have to dictate how the game is being played. And Chelsea is going to uh, be more likely to be on the front foot in this one. But... It still is a low-percentage gamble, and I just can't imagine... Well, I guess I can't imagine teams being hubristic and (laughs) thinking that they're better than they are, but it just seems like such a a tough play. Um, But we'll we'll see how it plays out. As far as this actual game card tick, uh, like I mentioned, Everton has this weird dynamic where against the lesser teams where they're able to dictate play, they get teams that sit back against them and are able to stifle them. But against teams like Chelsea and other teams at the top of the table, they're going to have enough of the ball... Everton is able to use their skill and their speed and transition to give them trouble. The question is whether that's how the game will play out early Saturday.
1: Yeah, that that's really kind of the the big question because Everton, when they have a lot of possession, uh, they don't create as many chances it seems, and, and and they're not they lack that cutting edge in front of goal when they when they've got space when they're able to counter, especially now with Aruna Kone back on the team and he's been playing out wide. It, it seems like there there's more movement and Ross Barkley being fit that's a huge deal. And again, uh, if one of these two scenarios weren't going through my head that I mentioned earlier. I think Barkley might have been on the on the block this summer, mm-hmm. so that's another data that I've used to come up with this theory because uh, I I thought Barkley would be moved on at some point because that's what Everton does, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Barkley with Barkley back on the team with Kone, uh, with uh, whoever they play on the left side, you know they uh, they've now signed Aaron Lennon. We didn't mention that in, uh, permanently. Yeah, they,
0: yeah, they ha- they're too deep across their their front three. Well, they don't have the number ten yeah. that they want, but they have a number of Players that they can rotate into those positions now.
1: Yeah, they have Morales, they have De La Feu they have uh, Pinar still. They have uh, Lennon. Lenin. I know I'm forgetting somebody. Um, and I mentioned Barkley in the middle, but they've got yeah, right. They're they they're just they're very very. Oh, uh, Aiden McGiddy, right? He's still there. So they're <laughs> in
0: spirit <laughs> at least.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Taron um, Gibson's still on their books too. Yeah, but, well,
0: um, yeah. Let's not go there.
1: Among other uh, things that Darren Gibson is involved in, yeah, now. other
0: books that Darren Gibson's on now. Arctic, <laughs> <laughs> right. There's, a, there's, a, there's not to change topics abruptly, but I do think that uh, in going through this list, we are shortchanging one game this week. Considering it's between the top two teams in the league, uh, is this the, is this the week that Manchester City, you know, with all their internationals coming back for a short week, do they finally drop points? they they're at Selhurst Park.
1: Yeah, it's very possible, especially with uh, Bakari Sanya having been pulled off uh, in. Uh, uh, having picked up a uh, picked up a knock uh, for France and having come off, it, there's uh, some concern. Who plays it right back? But, then it's either going to be um, a youth player, a Spanish youth player whose name I'm, I'm forgetting, and I know mm-hmm. who this is. I'm, don't uh, he's 18 years old, or it's going to have to be. Uh, they're going to have to probably move. <laughs> Mangala or
0: uh, Otamendi out there.
1: Yeah, or, or, yeah okay. well, Otamendi is going to have to play right back because Clichy uh, is still several weeks away from returning, oh, has, as is Zabaleta, cause, and Milner just, isn't on the team just, anymore. Just so. put
0: Nasri back there.
1: Yeah, uh, Fabian Delph pulled a hamstring for <laughs> England. I think that was the uh, Raheem
0: Sterling that, has experience at the position.
1: Right, <laughs> Yeah, in in in, in the uh, in the wing back. Uh, yeah, where, uh, so I think what happened was Pellegrini knew he had this issue after. Uh, Sonia got hurt and this gets back to the whole thing about internationals in short weeks uh, then Delph pulls a hamstring as everybody saw in the first 10 seconds of the England game mm-hmm. uh, he thought he would just slide Delph in there and Delph could play right back and get right back Definitely now could've. there's a genuine problem and is probably yeah. going to be introduced to English football playing right back and we've seen him play right back before we saw him play right back in the World Cup that didn't go so well
0: <laughs> no it didn't uh, one of Diego Maradona's amazing innovations um, Kartik there. Premier League, we've done it. I can't get through this uh podcast without asking about your feelings on our beloved US men's national team. <laughs> now, I, I some- thought you
1: were gonna spare me this.
0: No, I'm not. I wrote something today that basically was like I it's just too hard for me to watch. These games Clinsman doesn't take these games seriously. Or he takes them seriously, but for not, non-competitive reasons, for developmental reasons. He's out there. He's experimenting. He's, he's trying people in new positions, like Alejandro Bedoya is a holding midfielder. Um, so it's it's really hard to draw anything definitively analytical from these games, and it's really hard to watch these games because they are so ugly to watch most of the time.
1: Yeah, both both you and Steve Davis have had excellent uh, analysis of this at World Soccer Talk uh, on, on our website. And uh, I... Uh, yesterday's game was was about as bad as it got because what I saw was a team that was very confused. There wasn't the kind of fight you typically see from U.S. teams, and I, I'm not concerned about results in friendlies either. And four ones to Brazil happened, but of course, this four one felt more like a ten nil. Yeah, and the, the U.S. goal was scored by writings uh, Danny Williams in stoppage time from about forty yards out or thirty five yards out. It was just a, a hopeful belt. Uh, with, with when the, the game was over, that that recorded the one goal. It just seemed like players were confused, players were dispirited, and that they were ready to get back to their clubs. And the U.S., this, this may be part of the maturation of a, of a football-playing nation. Um, we've never been in that position because guys' commitments have always been to the national team first, it seems, among American players. But uh, I, I've noticed this, and it's just not, it wasn't just yesterday, but yesterday was kind of a culmination of it, that maybe it's the Klinsman regime and he, he not connecting with players and players being confused and not knowing where they stand. But I saw on the faces of guys like Jeff Cameron, Uh, And uh, Jermaine Jones, Mm -hmm. Jermaine Jones club is actually plays at the same stadium as this game was, but uh, a, a desire to kind of just get 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 this over with and get back to their clubs. Yeah. And that that I think is something that's worrying for the U.S. national team, but it may be healthy for U.S. soccer as players are taking their club responsibility seriously.
0: Yeah, Cameron is a very interesting case. Hasn't ever had a settled position within the national team. Probably feels like based on his performances and his, uh, where he's playing his club soccer, probably deserves one, deserves some more consideration at the positions he likes most. Central defense, central midfield was told this uh, week that he de- he's needed it right back. He's also um, somebody that's a strong personality too. So if things aren't necessarily going his way, it's not like he's going to revolt, but he he's an interesting kind of bellwether for the attitude within the team. Kartik, um, everybody is looking, already looking forward to October 10th, CONCACAF Confederations <laughs> Cup playoff, U.S. versus Mexico. Mexico had their first two games under Ricardo Tucaforetti. Two draws, two entertaining draws, as opposed to the U.S. Uh, what are your feelings? My, my feeling is just, we, it just still seems like that's so far in the future.
1: Yeah, we have four weeks of club football to get through until then, but uh, this is a very awkward situation because I, I i'm not someone who believes in that the confederations cups to be all and end all and that the value i think the value is very much overrated by yeah. people in the united states it's not that big a deal that having been said jürgen klinsman is the one who came out and said we have to qualify mm-hmm. and there are other people who have made it a goal a stated goal now if i'm uh, uh, if i'm writing about any other or or commenting on any other football playing nation and you don't qualify for the Federations Cup, it's not really a big deal. But the United States has made it a big deal. They're now in this one-off playoff, which is uh, high stakes. The U.S. hasn't been in this situation in qualifying in ages, in Mm -hmm. any kind of qualifying where they have to win a game. I mean, I guess you could say the Algeria game in 2010 in the World Cup was kind of like that, Mm -hmm. but it was a little bit different. You weren't playing against your rival team And uh, so maybe we're going all the way back to 89 and Paul Caligiuri in in, in Port of Spain. Uh, This is a high-pressure game, again, for a tournament, which I don't think is that important, but a high-pressure game because they've made it a high-pressure game. And unfortunately, the way things are looking, the United States is going to have a hard time winning that match. And the question is, what is the fallout if they don't win the match? And that's, uh, that's something that I think is being pondered at this very moment because there seems to be a little too much experimentation as you talked about in in, in your writing uh, on World Soccer Talk and a sense that we're not really sure what direction this thing is going in. That Mm -hmm. having been said, I just have to say this before we close out, I go back to what I wrote after the Gold Cup uh, on World Soccer Talk that Jurgen Klinsmann has maybe the worst set of top line players uh, that Mm -hmm. any U.S. coach has had since Bob Gansler in 1990. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have there isn't a single guy that, start, that starts for this team that I believe would start for the 2002 team. I'm, 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 I'm being completely serious. I'm not just, <laughs> that's not just hyperbolic. It's funny
0: that you have to say that you're being completely serious. Right. Like nobody right. would actually consider that, that you uh, aren't just being hyperbolic. But, I mean, it's yeah. worth sitting down and with a pen and paper and actually you know, position by position circling the guys and saying – I did it. Yeah. I did it
1: earlier today because I, I thought maybe I was wrong and I went – you know, John O'Brien or, or, or this one, or Claudia Raina or this one, mm. Landon Donovan or, or Brian McBride, and it's uh, every position. Yeah. So the yeah. only, pos- only position where you could say there might be a shot is, even though we had a great World Cup, with Tony Sané, but then the U.S. doesn't have a right back right now. So, yeah. um, but the point being that Klinsman has been dealt a pretty bad hang- hand at the top. That having been said, he has a deeper player pool than any U.S. manager has ever had. Yeah, but he, More... he
0: helped create that pool, too. So. He helped
1: create that pool. That's correct. Uh, he's making some odd decisions about player selections. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. know where Benny Failhaber is. I don't know why Dax McCarty hasn't been called in. I don't know where Eric Lehigh is uh, I, well, I know where he is. I mean, I see him in the championship every week, but yeah. I don't know why he hasn't been called in for three years. Jonathan Spector hadn't been called in for three and a half years until uh, uh, almost four years until he got called in for this game and played, made mm-hmm. a cameo last night. So I, I don't know. He makes some very judgmental snap decisions about players and the players that win his confidence like breck shea and timothy chandler and guy deandre yedlin they can do nothing wrong they can have stinker after stinker after stinker and keep getting called in other guys like lehigh and Specter and failhaber uh, who he seemingly doesn't like can't do anything at their clubs to get uh, a call up so it's very
0: bizarre yeah my theory is that it all comes back to how the team, how these guys are training, how they're responding to those two, three times a day training sessions and practices, how they're interacting with coaching staff, with their clubs. I think so much of what Jurgen Klinsmann does, or as far as criteria he uses to evaluate these players, happens away from what we see. And um, yeah, that, that's. I think that's all speculation. Some people hear things, you hear rumors floating around, but. Uh, Klinsman remains a very nebulous kind of guy and I think it's just so ironic that the experimenting and lack of direction we see from him is the same experimenting and lack of direction that got the women's coach fired before the World Cup. Right. Uh, (laughs) Well everybody that is our midweek special show Uh, we're going to be back on Sunday to talk about this weekend's action in the Premier League as well as touch on what's going on in Europe but until then for Kartik Krishnar, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.